Matthew chapter 2. This is the end of Matthew's account uh, of the Christmas story. And so that's where we're going to be heading. We're going to be starting with a very familiar passage uh, in the visit of the wise men, and then we'll finish through to the end of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 through 22. So we're going to be reading a good bit of it today. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. Then King Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet of which we read this morning. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were under two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. So I pray by it this morning, that as we read a very familiar story with maybe an unfamiliar ending, Lord, that you would come and you would remind us of just how glorious your coming was. And what you came to do from the very beginning was to, as the light of the world, step into our darkness. So shine a light on our lives and our hearts today, Lord. Would we be comforted and changed? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like many of you, Alice and I have been watching a lot of Christmas movies, and uh, there are a lot of really great Christmas movies out there. Movies that kind of help you understand the true reason for the season, uh, love, joy, peace. They'll even tell you the gospel story like Charlie Brown Christmas and Linus uh, reciting the gospel account of Luke. But there is no movie that I think is a better metaphor 
for December and all that we experience during the Christmas season than the movie Home Alone. Home Alone is a great movie. If you have not seen this movie, uh, you need to unscrew yourself. Go take your kids and go watch it today. It's been raining all day. This is a perfect movie day. Go watch this movie. But I love Home Alone. I think it is the best metaphor for the month of December and everything that we experience. And one of the scenes I'm thinking about is this very poignant moment. Kevin realizes that the thieves know that he's alone and they're going to come back at night at 9 o'clock ready to invade his house. So Kevin's kind of spent the day kind of just in a little bit of a worry. Uh, and so he's kind of uh, wandering around town, you remember, and he stumbles upon the church on Christmas Eve. And he had walked past and he had hid in the nativity earlier, but he walks past this church and he decides, you know what, I'm going to walk inside. And he walks inside uh, and you just see this beautiful moment. The choir is singing. The church is decorated beautifully. And Kevin just kind of walks down the aisle. There aren't many people there. And it's just peaceful and joyful. Remember, he meets his neighbor at the time, and he's been afraid of his neighbor this whole movie, but he realizes that this neighbor isn't actually as scary as he thought. And Kevin kind of gets to be in the embodiment of Christmas and says, you know what, you should go reunite with your family. Right? It's this beautiful moment. And if you watch the scene, which I watched it again last week uh, for this year, you notice that Kevin is smiling. He's relaxed the whole scene until... The very end of the scene when the church bells go off and you watch Kevin's eyes get wide open because he realizes, all right, all of this is done. Now it's time for the battle to come, right? It's his house and he needs to go defend it. And I think that that's just such a great metaphor when it comes to the Christmas season, right? Because for a brief passing moment every December, the Christmas story, the nativity, it warms our hearts. Right? That's why church attendance rises in the month of December. It's because we love this picture of God in a manger. Right? We come and we sing silent night. Right? All is calm. All is bright. Joy to the world. We're celebratory. Peace and love and goodwill towards men. It's just a wonderful story and people love to hear it time in and time out. But then the 26th comes. Right? And then gone is the peace and love and joy and kind of the warmth and relaxing. And you realize that, you know what? All of the things that I brought into this Christmas season, all the weariness, all the fears, all the anxieties, all the doubts that I have, they're still there. And what happens is maybe if you're like me, the cynicism kind of kicks in. Is this really all there is to Christmas? us telling a really warm and fuzzy story only for real life to hit us in the face on the 26th? Is there something deeper that we're exploring here during this season of Advent, during the season of Christmas? Is there something deeper here or is this simply just a means to distract ourselves from what's going on in real life? I think that's a fair question that many people ask this time of year. And it's what brings us to Matthew chapter two. This is the ending of the Christmas story. And as I was reading it, you notice that after the wise men put the gifts down at Jesus' feet, this story is a downhill roll, right? Genocide breaks out from a jealous king. Jesus is forced to flee into exile in Egypt. And even when they come home, remember, 
Joseph is afraid to go live where he lived in the past because he's afraid that that king might try to kill Jesus too. So they have to withdraw away as far as they can get in the land of Israel. And they have to go live in an unknown place because they still live in fear. And I think that's very far from the ending that we oftentimes tell. We usually stop with the wise men, right? But in this story, not everything is calm and bright. There's a lot of fear. There's death. There's hopelessness. It's real. It's scary. It's dark. And I think it's exactly where we see who Jesus truly is. Where we see the true joy that Jesus came to bring. That the light of the world is not something that simply amuses us for a month out of the year. But it is a deep well of hope and joy that changes everything about us. Because here we see that Jesus is not like the others. Like other leaders and other kings and other people who might distance themselves from raw reality. You see here that Jesus confronts it head on. That the good news of Christmas is that God did not stay at a distance, but God, from the very start, he was all the way in it. And friends, I think that that's why when we hear this story again, we can have true joy because the light of the world, this king of joy, he actually stepped into our darkness. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage again, and I want us to look at this king anew. I want us to look at his coming, maybe in a new way, because as dark as this passage is, as much of a Debbie Downer as this passage might be on a Christmas Sunday, I think we see just how glorious Jesus truly is. And so three things that I think we see this morning. One, we see that a king has come who's prepared to die. A king has come who's prepared to die. And I want us to back up, so go back to the familiar scene of the wise men who come before Jesus with gifts. And Uh, A lot has been done talking about who these men would have been. So these probably were astrologers. These were philosophers. And these people would have no doubt been very aware of the prophetic announcements of Isaiah about who uh, the Messiah was to be. And so that's why they get so excited when they see the star. They were ready for uh, the coming of the Messiah. And so they come and these wise men lay three gifts uh, before Jesus. And We've heard this story a thousand times. It's beautiful. We see that uh, the wise men bring gifts. It just shows how uh, incredible Jesus is. It's warm. Uh, But there is a point to this story. Uh, Matthew is the only one who will tell you that the wise men showed up uh, to Jesus' house and to lay gifts. And that's because Matthew has a mission. Uh, The gospel writer Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, his his main goal is writing to a Jewish audience to convince the Jewish audience that this Jesus, he is the one who has been foretold throughout all the scriptures. He wants you to start seeing the illusions. He wants you to start seeing the story retold throughout all the Old Testament in the person of Jesus. And so when Matthew starts telling the story about the wise men coming and laying their gifts, Matthew wants to tell you this because there's a lot of significance to what they put at Jesus' feet. And I just want to go over that real fast. The first gift that they give is gold. First gift they give is gold, and that would have been something that you would give to a king, right? You go back to the Old Testament, specifically with Solomon. Oftentimes, Solomon, one of the greatest kings of Israel, was given tributes by other nations of gold, lots and lots of gold. And so this is a gift you would give to a king. And so Matthew wants you to see that they see Jesus in this kind of rarefied air, that Jesus is a king. 
He is to be understood as such. But the second gift uh, is frankincense. Many of us don't know what that is. I didn't really know what it is myself, but frankincense is actually something that makes its way into a lot of lotions and soaps. It's kind of an aromatic. Uh, And what's really special about frankincense, especially in Scripture, is that frankincense was used a lot in temple worship. So when you would go to the temple and they would burn incense and they would use the aromas of the temple, oftentimes frankincense was a part of this. So frankincense was used in an act of worship. So I want you to think about that for a second. One, Jesus receives gold, which is the gift of a king, but he also receives a gift that would have been used in worship. So this is kind of an offering. This is kind of a recognition of what the prophet Isaiah would have said, that not only is this a king, but this is something more than a king. This is God himself. So this understanding that Matthew is trying to say that this king is not just another normal king, but this is God himself. But then you get to the third gift. You get to the myrrh. And myrrh was also used in kind of worship and royal giving, but also myrrh was a healing and it was a burial spice. And the next time you'll see myrrh show up in Scripture, if you go to Mark and you read his account of the crucifixion, Mark is very keen to note that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the soldiers put the sponge in and give him the sour wine, it was also mixed with myrrh. And so think about those three gifts for a second. A gift for a king, a gift that acknowledges the worship of God, but also a gift that was used in healing and burial. All those three things together. What is Matthew communicating? That this is a king. God himself is a king who has come prepared to die. He is a king who has not come to enthrone himself in power, but he's come to enthrone himself in a grave. As Philippians 2 says, not to consider equality with God something to be grasped, but to empty himself, even to the point of death on a cross. In big theological terms, we'll call this Christ's humiliation because it's literally that, right? Think about it. God who is all-sufficient, all-powerful, in heaven reigning over all creation, he steps into our world. He takes on the likeness of something lesser than himself. He becomes human and over the course of his life would be subject to poverty, humanity, and death even death on the cross, Christ's humiliation. So where Christ lowers himself, it's a humiliation for him, but it's a blessing for us. And I think about, as I reflect on this king who's come to die, this king that Matthew is trying to get us to follow, doesn't it draw us to think about the people that we tend to follow? The leaders and the kings and the influencers and the people that we kind of put on this pedestal of like, these are the people who kind of direct our lives. These are the people that we kind of follow behind. And I want you to think about those people for a second. What are some characteristics that you might ascribe to the people who you follow? And I think for me, some of those characteristics are the people we put our trust in, the people who we put in leadership positions, they are generally the ones with the big personalities, right? They're the people who can hold our attention, right? They're the people who can say the right thing at the right time. They're people who are strong in action, But I think maybe more than any other time in history, I think many of us are really disillusioned by the people that we've put in our leadership positions, the the places that orient our lives, right? We're disillusioned with it because right and left, you'll see it on the news, you'll see it in your life. Those people that we've put our trust in, 
oftentimes what do we see happen? They become power hungry. They become selfish. They become domineering. We realize that they just see it all about them and they're using all of this for selfish gain. Right? And so think about these gifts for a second and what kind of king they're heralding. Right? Here is God himself creator and sustainer of everything and everyone. And he has not come to take control by force, but he has come to serve. He has not come to rule from a throne, but he's come to rule from a grave. Right? Jesus has not come to demand from you, but Jesus comes to invite you. Right? And so Christmas is heralding a different kind of king because these gifts are kind of telling us of a different king altogether, a king whose whole life was for you. Everything he did was for you. It was never against you. And I think as we deal with the stuff of life, right, all of the things that we deal with in our darkness, I think we're reminded and we're comforted that God's whole plan, the one who set all things in motion, his plan was not to withdraw but to step in. He was prepared to die for us from the very beginning. So a king prepared to die, but then second, a king prepared to endure the darkness. And uh, if you keep reading, this passage then turns to the massacre of babies under two. And if you've read your Bible a little bit, you might recognize the story does happen somewhere else. Uh, It happens in the book of Exodus, chapter one. You remember when uh, Egypt uh, is threatened by the Israelite growth, so Pharaoh decides, I want to kill all the babies under two to make sure I can control the population. That's when Moses is sent down the river uh, in a basket. And so Here's what happens. That Herod makes the decree, and so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt. And as a Jewish reader, I can't communicate to you how big a deal this would have been. To read Matthew's account and to see that Jesus is being taken into exile into Egypt. Because why? Because in their history, if you go read the book of Exodus, Egypt is the place of bondage and slavery. Right? This is where the people of God needed to be rescued from. This was the place of where they were held, tortured, worked to death, abused. Right? They were not a people until God delivered them. And so if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament prophets, even what we read uh, in Hosea chapter 11, a kind of darkness, a kind of hopelessness, a kind of fear. Sorry. Egypt would have been the metaphor to express kind of stuff like that. And here's the thing. Jesus, this is a historical passage, so Jesus did go to Egypt, but oftentimes what will happen is the Bible uses these stories to pack a lot of spiritual truth and reality. And so Egypt was the place of bondage and slavery for the people of God. And here is Jesus being taken right into its heart. The king, the Messiah, the one who is supposed to save and redeem, taken right into the darkness. How big a deal is it that God would reenact the Exodus story again, not with Israel, but with his own son? Because that's exactly what Matthew's trying to show you. This is what Jesus came to do, right? Jesus came to deliver, Jesus came to save, and he couldn't do it at an arm's length, 
right? He had to face the darkness head on. And as a Jewish reader, you read the story and you understand, right? God is with us. He's not in the temple separated from us anymore, but he has stepped into our darkness. He has not separated himself from our troubles, but he has come and he has taken on my bondage. He has taken on my temptations. He's taken on my fears. He's taken on my anxieties. He's taken on my pains. And guess what? As he emerges from Egypt, And later on in the Gospels, as he emerges from a grave, we see that Jesus does so, and he conquers it all, right? Jesus goes into our darkness, and the light is not extinguished. When uh, we were growing up at our church in Orlando, uh, we had this special tradition that kind of happened for a few years where uh, we would do the candlelight service, and so you would sing Silent Night, and you would leave the candle lit, after silent night was over, and then you would dismiss, and you would keep the candle lit. And the challenge was that you walk out of the sanctuary with the candle lit, and you've got to get it all the way home to go snuff it out on the doorpost of your house. And my brother and I love this. But think about that for a second. You've got a candle, and you've got to get that thing all the way home. And there are a lot of things you don't necessarily think about. It could be cold. It could be rainy. You're going to get in a car with all your kids and a live flame, it's difficult to keep that thing lit. It's difficult to watch it, and it'll wicker. It'll have moments where you think this is about to go out, but eventually you keep it lit and you bring it home. But it's not as easy as it is in the sanctuary when it's all calm and bright, and it's just very easy to keep it lit. And that's the point. See, Jesus didn't stay in the temple. The light of the world didn't stay removed where it was easy to stay lit. Jesus stepped into the darkness where it was hard, where it was difficult. He lost family and friends. He got hungry. Jesus got sick. He entered ridicule and rejection. And in each and every moment, friends, the light never went out. In fact, God endured the darkness as it says in John 1. It did not understand him. It did not overcome him. See, the light continued to shine. And friends, the reason that this is a joyful passage is that's the God we put our trust in. A God who weeped at the tomb for his friend, who had to stomach Judas sitting across from him at the Last Supper on the night he was to be betrayed. A Jesus who had to sit there quietly while lies were hurled about at his fake trial. See, Jesus went into Egypt. Jesus went into our darkness. And the light of the world was not overcome. And so that's a God we can put our trust in. And then finally, real quickly, Jesus is not just a king in glory, but he's a king in the ordinary. And so you get to the very last part of this passage, and Jesus comes out of Egypt, uh, and the family lives in fear, right? So they don't want to go back to uh, Bethlehem or in the area of Judea because they know that the king is there. So they withdraw to Nazareth. And if you look on a map, you can look in the back of your Bible, a map of where Nazareth is versus where Bethlehem and Judea are. Uh, and you'll notice that Nazareth, Nazareth is about as far away as possible that you can get in the land of Israel from the capital city. Uh, And if you would like to know what kind of reputation Nazareth had, you just have to ask the Pharisees when they hear that Jesus is from Nazareth, and they go, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth was about as poor and useless of a place as you could get in the eyes of the religious leaders. 
And here is where the king, here is where the Messiah goes to live. Right? For 30 years, this is where Jesus lived, he worked, and he played. Ordinary, poor, useless old Nazareth. Right? In obscurity. And this is the ending of the Christmas story, friends. This is it. The story of angels and nativity and wise men coming and laying gifts of royalty at Jesus' feet, where does it end? It ends in a podunk fishing town in the north of Israel in absolute obscurity. It's kind of a letdown. But it's really not. Why? Because this is where the king decides to spend his time. Not in ornate throne rooms or in government center meetings, but he spends it in the ordinary hum of family life. He spends it in the ordinary hum with all the highs and all the lows. God spends his life in the ordinary. And I think that that's so beautiful because here's a king who has come on this cosmic mission to save us from the darkness, right? To save us from death itself. And what does he do first and foremost? He just learns. He eats. He plays just like us. This king of ultimate joy, this king of ultimate joy, he infuses our lives with such a holy significance. Because guess what, friends? It wasn't beneath God. You threw that. It wasn't beneath God to experience them. It wasn't beneath God to experience them. You know, I think sometimes, and this was me growing up, I think sometimes we hear this story and we hear about the wonder and the incredible nature of Christmas and then we kind of put our lives next to it a little bit and we go, man, this is just so incredible and that longing in our heart kind of pounds for us to be part of more, right? This is a wondrous and grand story and yet I look at my life and it's not quite that. I think that's why kids many times, like when I turned 11, I was waiting for my letter from Hogwarts Right? Because I wanted my life to be wrapped up in something far grander and far greater than geometry class. Right? There's this article out there that I really love, and it's talking about the emergence of a quarter life crisis for people kind of my age who have kind of, they've been grown up in the world where they're like, they want to experience their world, they want to see it all, they want to have all the opportunities. And now you get to kind of 25 to 30, and you kind of have to start settling down, and ordinary kind of hits you in the face. You realize that life is not as grand an adventure as you may have dreamed about it at the beginning. You kind of go, is this all there is? And then what makes it worse is you have social media and you're just swiping through and you're going, but I see all these other people living the life. Their life is so grand and comparison becomes the thief of our joy. We're like, am I really getting the most out of life? I'm hearing this Christmas story. My life isn't as grand and as wonderful as that, my life kind of stinks. My life kind of hurts. I'm in darkness. But I think that's what makes this final bit of what Jesus did so glorious. The angels sing, the wise men bow, the star shines, and then Jesus has to grow up and go to school. Right? He has to do the dishes with mom and dad. Right? He has to learn how to woodwork with his dad. He has to take out the trash. You see, the wonder of God did it stay in this area, but it stepped down into our ordinary life and it infused every moment with a holy significance.
because it wasn't beneath God to experience. You see, God can be found in every moment because he stepped into every moment. This belief that we have to somehow show up to church and we have this encounter with the divine, that's false because the divine stepped into our ordinary life and he infused it with all significance. You see, joy can be found in all moments because Jesus truly dwelt among us. Not with us in another space, but among us. I'll close with this. Um, Dan Worry, he's got this um, Twitter page. It's, uh, he's an early infant and early childhood uh, expert. Uh, and what he does, it's really cool. He posts videos about babies. And then he'll, they're the really cute viral videos of babies. And then uh, you, he kind of explains the reasons as to why uh, the video is taking place. And so he had a video this past week where he has a baby sitting in his parents' lap. And the mom's just ripping paper. And the baby is laughing just losing it. I mean, just paper after paper, just ripping it. And the baby's going crazy. And he's explaining that, well, why would a baby laugh at something like this? Well, apparently what makes children laugh at that age is the subversing of expectations. That mom cares about many pieces of paper, so she treats them gently. You read them, you don't rip them, right? When you're reading a book, you don't crinkle the pages, So what makes it all the more funny is when mom just sits there and rips it. All of a sudden, it's all out the window. It's funny. It's the same reason why when you read stories to your kids and you make really funny voices, that's not the sound that's supposed to come out of there. And they laugh and they laugh and they laugh. And I love it because what brings joy? The subversive, the the switching of expectations. Isn't that what the king of joy did? What our expectations of who God is, that's not what he did. But oh, does it bring joy to know that a king would come and he would lay down his life at your feet to die for you. That he would step into your darkness, that he would not be removed from it, that he would take that on, and that he would live your ordinary life and so infuse it with significance. See, that's not what we expect, but that's what the king of joy did. And I think that that's what brings us true hope in this season, our king of joy, prepared to die, prepared to face the darkness, living in the ordinary, but creating in us an extraordinary light for the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are that kind of king, that you switch up our expectations, that, Lord, this is not what kings and leaders do, but, Lord, you stepped in all the way, Lord, you experienced what we're experiencing. You went through our highs and lows. You know what we're dealing with. Lord, thank you. Lord, with this story, this Christmas story that you stepped into our world, Lord, would it radiate joy? Because there's something deeper here, a deeper joy, a deeper hope than anything we could imagine. Pray this in Jesus' name.